0: The time is now. Volume 2, Episode 31. This is Employment Law Now, and I am your host, Mike Schmidt, the Vice Chair of our Labor and Employment Department here at Cozen O'Connor. Where were you in 1980? More importantly, what was the workplace like in 1980?
1: Stumble to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition and yawn and stretch and try to come to life.
0: You know you're tapping your fingers.
1: Jumping, showering, the the blood starts pumping. Out on the streets, the traffic starts jumping. Folks like me on the job from nine to five. Can't
0: get enough of this song. all right thanks dolly no i really can't get enough of that song but i'm not casey Kasem, and i'm certainly not ryan seacrest but nineteen eighty when that song came out the theme song to the motion picture of course nine to 5, 38 years ago the workplace and employer employee relations were so different for starters our work world today is definitely no longer nine to five there is some similarity certainly the constant struggle for employers just like it was in nineteen eighty it is today to do the right thing by its employees while trying to run a business and also at the same time try to comply with government attempts to regulate the workplace the big difference though thirty eight years later the issues and the modern realities of today that are used to regulate the workplace and this nine-to-five workday are markedly different and so that's what i want to talk about a little bit uh... today give you a few examples first let's start with our update now segment the application of antitrust laws to employer liability was not even heard of back in nineteen eighty so here for our update now segment I talked a couple of episodes ago about the October 2016 joint guidance from the United States Department of Justice and the United States Federal Trade Commission on using antitrust laws both civilly and criminally to knock out certain non-compete agreements between employers between employers remember we're not talking in this case about the employer-employee agreement necessarily but here we're talking about agreements between two or more employers not to poach each other's employees so these two federal agencies have made very clear as I talked about a couple of episodes ago antitrust law applies to competition among firms to hire employees or to suppress or otherwise affect wages well I want to give you an update on that One and a half years since that October 2016 guidance, just this month, the Department of Justice brought its very first case. A complaint was filed by the DOJ against Noor, Bremsing AG, and Westinghouse Air Brake Technologies Corp. The allegations were that the two competing rail companies allegedly entered into a series of no poaching agreements going back as far as 2009 at least. The complaint alleged that each of these companies were top competitors with each other for railway equipment and for the skilled talent that were working at these companies. The agreements entered into by these two companies allegedly suppressed normal price-setting mechanisms in their market and ultimately restrained competition for employees, the DOJ said. What was interesting here is that the complaint in this case is seeking only civil damages perhaps that's because the company's agreements ended they in other words they stopped entering into these agreements before the october two thousand sixteen guidance came out and there was no sense no evidence that their conduct continued after october two thousand sixteen certainly that might have been different if, even though the agreements were entered into prior to october two thousand sixteen they were being enforced by the companies after the october two thousand sixteen guidance so again it's noteworthy because it's not just a matter of a guidance memorandum um, uh, issued by these two federal agencies here is the very first complaint issued as promised and i suspect we're going to continue to see these types of complaints and not only civil complaints, but criminal actions being brought by the Department of Justice. So keep watching. Update now, again, our next update now segment. Wage and hour cases are also still a lot hotter than they were back in 1980. I also spoke, um, I think it was the last episode, about the United States Department of Labor's new paid program, PAID. Remember that stands for Payroll Audit Independent Determination that the Department of Labor um, created to incentivize employers to self-audit and come to the Department of Labor to resolve wage and hour issues that they found in those self-audits. As we talked about, there are certainly benefits to your company engaging in this program and there certainly are limitations one of those limitations as i noted was the fact that this is this paid program is a federal program and did not necessarily impact particular state liability and state enforcement of wage and hour violations well true to form the states were not taking this federal dol initiative lying down the attorneys general of 10 different states plus the district of columbia went a step farther as New York's Attorney General Eric Schneiderman penned a letter just this past April 11th to the United States Department of Labor Secretary Alex Acosta on behalf of all of those attorneys general the letter seeks to raise quote serious concerns end quote about the federal paid program and specifically mister Schneiderman claims that the federal program encroaches on workers rights under state labor laws for example The AGs apparently have issues with what happens when there are active State Department of Labor investigations, particularly in circumstances where the company doesn't know about the investigation, yet goes ahead and tries to settle federal liability with the federal DOL. What happens when these claims are resolved pursuant to this federal program? The state attorneys general are claiming that the company sort of gets off scot-free. Are they settling state claims at the same time and getting an interest-free and no liquidated damages settlement without the states being involved? What's interesting, really, uh, on top of uh, the state's attorneys general going with this letter, is that the letter doesn't really ask for anything. It doesn't seek any particular relief. It really just advises, as we sort of knew already, that these different state jurisdictions would continue to prosecute labor violations. That's what the AGs are promising. They will continue to prosecute labor violations to the fullest extent of their state law, both civilly and criminally. So. This fight bears watching, too, and we will continue to update this issue as well. And all of you and your companies should still give some thought to this. You should still consider whether there are benefits to doing a self-audit, whether the self-audit is for your own purposes with your own counsel, or whether there's a benefit to doing the self-audit and actually participating in the federal program, notwithstanding what may uh, lie ahead from the state standpoint. So we will continue to watch that we move to our trending now segment and as long as we're talking about 1980 versus 2018 technology obviously wasn't like this in 1980 there was no internet there was no email and there was certainly no emoji harassment what i say emoji harassment you know i continue to be fascinated as i know you are with the application of employment laws to modern realities and modern technologies. And I talk about it all the time. So for example, we already know that for sexual harassment, you don't just have to say something sexual to potentially violate the law. We also know that you can have a nonverbal act, like some form of touching or a physical gesture that could rise to the level of unlawful sexual harassment. But what about emoji harassment? i said don't laugh (laughs) no emoji harassment that may be a real thing coming down the pike one thing we know about communication in twenty eighteen people use emojis to communicate gestures and opinions all the time and newly created emojis seemingly can't keep up with demand we're seeing new ones pop up on our iphones and otherwise all the time so what about these emojis well we also know that the lines have been significantly blurred between personal communication and work and workplace communication i just recently read a study and and this was somewhat staggering ninety two percent of the online population uses emojis ninety two percent of those people who are online use emojis and for the year 2016, which is I suppose the last full year um, that this study looked at, approximately 2.3 trillion, that's trillion with a T, 2.3 trillion mobile messages used emojis in some way. And we're not just talking anymore about that basic cute little smiley face. So it's not just me who's raising the issue we're starting to see this concept of emoji harassment and emojis being relevant to employment cases in cases that are popping up so just last year in 2017 the federal case in Mississippi for those of you who are keeping track at home the case name is Stewart versus Durham there were sexual harassment and emotional distress claims that included in the case a discussion of the meaning of the blowing kiss emoji and the winking emoji now when I went to law school and for those of you who went to law school as well I don't remember exactly anywhere in my textbooks or my outlines anything having to do with a blowing kiss emoji or a winking emoji but here we are in 2017 and 2018 talking about what those mean in today's modern world and what the impact of those emojis is to harassment claims 2018 and the Me Too movement, if nothing else, has shown us that we have an expanded interpretation and application of sexual harassment. And so you gotta keep an eye out on this with your companies. You gotta make sure that your investigations are sensitive to these issues, to emojis and other tech-based forms that harassment could occur in. It's not just, again, the traditional stand at the water cooler and say something appropriate. Your policies need to address it, your trainings need to address it, and your investigations need to address all of these new forms of harassment in today's technology. Far different than 1980, but it is a reality today. We move on to our noteworthy now, and did you feel that earlier this month? Did you feel that? Well, what is that? was a seismic shift in the world of overtime exemptions. No, 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 don't all get excited and clap. We're not talking about new news from the Department of Labor on the whole appeal in Texas and the Obama rules and the new Trump rules. We're not talking about news from the Department of Labor. No, this one, this seismic shift, came from the United States Supreme Court. We certainly weren't fighting about overtime exemption rules back in 1980 with that 9 to 5 workplace. Heck, that was even before the 2004 amendments that we're trying to now change came in existence. And this change may be subtle to some, but it was extremely important in the wage and hour arena when it comes to the burdens of proving whether an employee or a class of employees is or is not classified properly as exempt i feel like a grandfather always talking about how it used to be kids you don't know annoyance you had to find pay phones back then then you had to reach in your pocket and find a quarter and after all that sometimes you got a freaking busy signal wasn't call waiting the best thing ever invented it was the best thing call waiting the best thing Anyway, I digress. And back to how it used to be when it came to employment law. The standard when we were talking about proving whether somebody was exempt or non-exempt, the standard that was applied forever and has been applied forever by courts was that the FLSA, the Fair Labor Standards Act, exemptions, had to be narrowly construed. That was the standard, narrowly construed, particularly, the court said, in light of the very broad pro-employee goals of the FLSA itself. Now, obviously, that narrowly construed standard was a very strong hammer for employees and their lawyers, whether it was at the summary judgment stage, whether it was at trial in front of juries, and the jury instructions that judges read. But just this past April 2nd, 2018, the United States Supreme Court changed that completely. And for those of you keeping Track at home. Again, the case name is Encino Motorcars LLC versus Navarro. If your company is not one that operates an auto dealership, um, and if you don't have in your employee some auto service advisors, you probably dismissed this particular case out of hand but beyond determining whether these particular advisors were or were not properly classified as exempt in that case there was a very significant piece of the decision where the supreme court discussed how courts must analyze the overtime exemptions going forward specifically the united states supreme court rejected the narrow construction approach and instead the court held as follows quote we reject this principle as a useful guidepost for interpreting the FLSA referring to the construed narrowly approach the FLSA exemptions quote are as much a part of the FLSA's purpose as the overtime pay requirement we thus have no license to give the exemption anything but a fair reading end quote so we go now from narrowly construed to a fair reading standard It's a very strict constructionist view. They're taking a very strict view of the wording of the statute from this Republican-dominated Supreme Court. And now we are going to be looking at these exemptions under a much more lenient, fair reading standard. And so I suspect it's going to be very interesting moving forward with these cases. Maybe some employees who might not have passed muster as properly classified exempt employees maybe under this fair reading standard they might be considered properly classified as exempt this is much closer to a case-by-case analysis a, it depends on the facts and circumstances of the particular case kind of analysis what does it mean for you and your company Well. It sounds like a lot of legal mumbo jumbo, a lot of legalese, and it doesn't change the exemptions themselves. Remember that. It doesn't change the salary basis test and the job duties test, everything you've been reading about and talking about, and frankly, we're still waiting to see if there's going to be anything done about them. But it will dramatically change, I believe, how your lawyers will be able to defend a misclassification case, whether it's during an investigation from the Department of Labor, whether it's in various court submissions, or again, whether it's in front of juries. You know, when you put the big piece of oak tag or the computer slide in front of them and talk about the burden that has to be shown, you know, in order to succeed or not succeed on your classification decision for your employees, you now get the benefit of a much more lenient standard. Staying with the Trending Now segment, training, training, training. Back in 1980, the 9 to 5 workplace really didn't have a lot of training requirements, really didn't have a lot of training back then at all. And in fact, when they did have training, most if not all of it was called sexual harassment training. And I've spoken about this in prior episodes too. I've talked about how while sexual harassment is so important today, it's equally important that your training include all forms of harassment, all forms of discrimination, this concept of cultural sensitivity, diversity and inclusion, the broader approach to training that's required of your company in 2018. And all of you now in 2018 continue to keep hearing that you have to do training, you have to do training and update the training that you do. Virtually all of the time that you've heard this, is because of some change in the law some change in approach to the law but maybe there's another reason why you should be thinking about doing training at your company maybe it's to help managers better manage you know very often managers and i'm not pointing fingers and i'm not saying this is necessarily the case at your company but very often managers become managers because they've been there the longest they rise from whatever starting position they had and they continue to do a good job and as they continue to progress upward on the ladder, ultimately they become managers. Again, because of longevity and not always because they're good managers. And it's not necessarily their fault either, but that doesn't necessarily mean that because they're given the title and position of a manager that they know how to manage people. What's the goal of your company? Yes, it's certainly to avoid legal exposure and potential liability in these employment claims, and that's certainly a good reason to do training, but isn't one of your goals as a company to increase productivity through performance management? Isn't one of your goals as a company to make sure that your employees are performing to their maximum capabilities so that they can be as productive as possible? And that obviously goes and helps your bottom line. Well, let's look at some interesting numbers. Another study that I um, was able to read just a short while ago, a company called West Monroe Partners did this really interesting study with very fascinating and telling feedback. For those of you who like numbers and stats, you're going to love this. For those individuals who supervised one to two employees, 59% of them reported having had no management training whatsoever. 59%! said they had no management training whatsoever, even though they were responsible for managing one to two employees. Let's take it up a notch. For those individuals who supervised three to five employees, you still had 41% of them reporting, more than a third of them reporting that they had never had any training on how to be a manager. Of all of the managers who reported uh, findings back in this study, 44% of them, almost half, say that they frequently felt overwhelmed in their job. So what's the solution here? Again, think about the training you're doing, not just to focus on the law, not just to give examples of what harassment is and sexual harassment versus age harassment versus other forms of harassment, but think about doing training for your managers on how to be managers what their obligations are, how to manage people, how to manage the difficult person, how to manage the superstar, will help your company's bottom line and certainly the morale of your work environment by doing it. Continuing in our next Trending Now segment, and as long as we're comparing still 1980 to 2018, this is perhaps the biggest difference. Data breaches and cybersecurity, right? Data breaches and cybersecurity threats were certainly not an issue back in 1980. So if I asked you this question, how many states have enacted a breach notification law, what would be your answer? Okay, well, maybe your first thought is, well, Mike, what's a breach notification law? Okay, fair enough. In a nutshell, it is a law that requires the company to notify certain parties, in some cases, certain government officials, when they suffer a breach or some violation of a computer system, something like a hacking or some other unauthorized acquisition of computerized data. So back to my question how many states in the United States have enacted a breach notification law? Raise your hand if you said one. Okay, raise your hand if you say ten. Gotta tell you this definitely works better when I'm doing this as an in-person seminar but if you said to yourself, Mike, I got the answer. All of the fifty states except one, well you'd be correct. South Dakota yes, South Dakota, just became the 49th state to enact a breach notification law. And like the laws in other states, it has a whole host of requirements that are real critical to trying to address data breaches and cybersecurity threats in 2018. The law, for example, defines what information holders are subject to it and what personal and protected information is at issue. The law defines when a system security breach takes place according to the law and then what the myriad of notification requirements are triggered due to that system security breach So, who are the affected individuals that have to be notified in what cases do state government officials have to be notified when does the notification have to take place in what form what's the content of the notice that has to be provided And, of course, what penalties are there and what rights to sue are there if the company does not follow, pretty strictly, the breach notification law. So, what's the takeaway of this particular trend? Um, It's not really for me to tell you every provision of every state's law. Oh, yes. and. While we're talking about South Dakota becoming the 49th law, you're probably wondering to yourself, if you haven't been sitting there trying to Google this, what's the 50th state? Well, the 50th state is and will be Alabama. But don't get excited if your company is in Alabama and has operations in Alabama. Don't get all excited that you don't have to comply with any breach notification laws. Fact of the matter is that Alabama's House of Representatives just passed a few weeks ago a breach notification bill, and it is sitting on the governor's desk waiting to be signed, in which case Alabama will then be the 50th state to enact a breach notification law. So, a lot's happened since 1980. I mean, think about back then, the way it used to be. Laverne and Shirley, Taxi, Mash, the Love Boat, Those were the shows in the heyday of 1980 that were at the top of the lists. Blondie's Call Me was Billboard's number one signal for the year ending 1980. And our employment world was much different from a 9 to 5 perspective. So if anything is a takeaway here, well, yeah, a lot has changed since 1980. But more than that, It shows you why it's so much more critical than ever in 2018 to monitor these cases, monitor these developments in the labor and employment world, all of these cases and developments that are affecting your workplace and affecting your 9 to 5 workday. So I hope this was somewhat informative to you. I look forward to uh, continuing the charge, continuing to talk about cases and developments. Keep your emails coming. I've got great episodes coming up with great guests. We're going to be talking about marijuana very soon. We're also going to be talking about a real significant trend and a significant kind of case that's being filed, and that is the website accessibility cases where it seems like the same plaintiffs' lawyers and the same plaintiffs in some cases are suing companies saying that their website is not accessible to disabled individuals and therefore the company is violating the Americans with Disabilities Act. What do you do and when should you be doing it? We'll be talking about that in future episodes. But until then, next time, thank you so much for listening, and I hope all of your labor is productive in your 9-to-5 workday.
1: Tumble out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen Pour myself a cup of ambition and yawn and stretch and try to come to life Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping. Out on the streets the traffic starts jumping with folks like me on the job